0: Hey everybody, welcome back to the Reclamation Podcast, where our goal is to help you reclaim good practices for following Jesus. If we haven't met yet, my name is Tony, and I'm your host. With over a decade in the local church, I care deeply and passionately about helping you connect with Jesus in practical ways. Today's conversation is perfect for that. I've got the Associate Professor of Pastoral Theology and Ambassador of Church Relations at Oklahoma Wesleyan University. His name is Joshua McNall, and he's got a brand new book out called uh, How Jesus Saves, Atonement for Ordinary People. This is the perfect thing to talk about heading into Holy Week 2023. If you like this conversation, do me a favor, hit that subscribe button wherever you listen to podcasts, leave a rating or review on iTunes or Spotify, and the highest compliment is always share this episode with a friend. Maybe somebody who you talk to uh, with about theology is the perfect person to share it with. Now, without any further ado, let's jump into this conversation with Josh. Josh, thank you so much for being on the podcast today. It's an honor to have you on.
1: Tony, thanks for having me. I'm really excited to talk with you.
0: Yeah, so you, you've done a number of things. You're obviously an author, you're a uh, father, husband, and we're going to get into all sorts of different parts of your story. But one of the things that I always love to kind of kick off the conversation with is this 30,000 view of how God wired you. How would you describe the calling that God has placed on your life?
1: Yeah, I would describe it the you know, my title here at the university, I teach at a place called Oklahoma Wesleyan University and the title they've given me is Pastoral Theology, uh, and that kind of gives you an answer to that 30,000-foot question. I I like to have one foot in the church world, and so I'm on staff preaching, helping in the local church part-time. But I also have one foot in the university setting, trying to train up and equip young people in the faith, and that includes people who are going into ministry. But it also includes, in my context, just regular, you know, first-year college freshmen trying to figure out what the heck do they believe. Uh, not just about the Bible, but maybe everything. Um, and, so, <laughs> and so I want to be able to talk to just normal, regular folks, but also have, a, have some engagement with uh, scholarship in the academy and the university at the same time.
0: So I, I know that there are a ton of people who are, who listen to this podcast who get really intimidated by uh, church words. And so I'm going to I'm going to be super intentional about asking you questions that uh, may seem a little simple. But let let's start with this idea of like theology. First of all, what is it and why should we have any that's good? Yeah, theology
1: is just the study of of God. Like what do you what do you think about God? What do you believe about God? And more importantly, how does that shape who you are as a person? How does that shape the way you actually treat people and the way you actually live? And so it's just it's talking about our relationship to God both with our mind but also with our habits
0: and and, and how we treat others. As you have been teaching and leaning into the next generation of pastoral leaders and thinking about theology, what are some of the things that you're noticing about the way that people are understanding God or just the way that that next generation of church leadership is coming up? Any, any reflections? I would imagine that that's a, a super uh, like rewarding but also frustrating job kind of trying to get people to to see something different.
1: Yeah, I think you know as we move into an age of uh, American history, in my context, since I live in America, that is increasingly post-Christian. Uh, there's a hunger in young people who are passionate about the gospel and passionate about ministry to kind of move beyond some of the intramural debates within the church that maybe mm-hmm. used to take up a lot of time and figure out how do we engage how do we engage with an increasingly secular culture that doesn't care about those intramural debates but desperately does want to have a relationship with jesus and wants to have a faith that gives meaning and purpose to to their lives and so that's one thing i've noticed is this desire to move past some of those maybe uh you know internal disputes and get it some of the more core issues of the faith
0: Well, that's probably the best transition into this latest resource that you've written, How Jesus Saves, uh, Atonement for Ordinary People. Um, So two things I really want to ask, that you know, kind of off the top. One, how do we define atonement? And two, if you could share the story about how this book came to be. I know it's in the intro, and I've read it, and I'm doing some research. I think it's a great story, though, so I, I definitely wanted to give you some time to share it. But let's just start with defining atonement.
1: Yeah, atonement's a really interesting word in theology, and it's a kind of a helpful word for, the, for people who, like a lot of us who maybe only speak English, because it's one of the few, like, genuinely English words in theology. And it speaks to the at-one-ment. I mean, that's really kind of a literal way mm-hmm. of breaking down the word, the at-one-ment, the, way, the making one or, or bringing to, of union between um, the believer— In Christ. So taking two parties, two entities, two people who were alienated or separated and making them uh, one or bound together. And that's kind of the origin of the word. And it speaks to what the Bible talks about as reconciliation, as bringing together um, of humanity and God because of what Jesus has done for us.
0: Love it. And I think that that's a super palatable way to understand the concept. Um, but yet the story of how this book got written is even a little bit deeper than that because it was born out of just a, a very genuine curiosity. Can you share a little bit about that story and, and what it kind of, what the path it prompted you to go on?
1: Yeah. So I've got four little kids. They're, they're getting older now from the time when I started writing this book, but I think parents who have young kids or grandparents can attest to, these sort of bedtime conversations that a parent has with their son or daughter when you go in to tuck them in, and in my case, I go in into my daughter Lucy's room and, and pray for her and tuck her in, and you know the the fourteen glasses of water and couple trips to the bathroom <laughs> that are that are required for a kid to get ready for bed. And and bedtime, hey, yeah. I mean, we've all got to be adequately hydrated, and uh, so so in our house probably like a lot of other people, bedtime kind of brings out the deep questions from kids. And sometimes those are just stalling tactics to try to, you know, delay bedtime a little bit longer. But in this instance, the story I start the book with is my daughter asked me, she said, daddy, just kind of out of the blue. She said, daddy, how does Jesus save us by dying on the cross? And, hmm. you know, sometimes you don't know where those questions Come from but in this case I had A a pretty good idea of where it came from Because we had just got back from A funeral Uh, The first real funeral that This particular child had kind of been Close to was the funeral of Her uncle Daniel who died when he Was 30 years old from a a really terrible uh, Disease called ALS And so, Even as like a very young kid my daughter Knew like death is not a good thing Death at a young age, somebody in their 30s, I mean, Jesus is, is about that age as well, is not something we celebrate. It's not something that is good news. And so she had heard her whole life that Jesus saves us and that he saves us by uh, dying for our sins on the cross, and that his death is connected to salvation and the good news. And this very obvious question that sometimes Christians just completely gloss over to her was just on the front uh, the front burner. was like, well, why in the world? is a cross and a violent shameful death the way in which god saves us and so the subtitle of the book is atonement for ordinary people because i share in the introduction that i should have really had a snappy answer for that question uh, because i i had just written a really large academic book on the doctrine of atonement and it was really well received by other academics and professors and i say in the introduction that what that basically means is that you've never read it or heard of it <laughs> if you're just like a normal <laughs> person. <laughs> True. And what it what it also means is for just regular people or at least for my daughter like some of those big 10 dollar theology terms and intramural debates even though they're important they weren't going to help her in in that moment. I needed a way of talking about how Jesus saves for ordinary people in language that regular people can understand. And, and so that's what this book is. It's birthed out of just a very simple, honest question from a kid who probably at the time was maybe, you know, eight years old or something. And and I wanted to be able to talk about salvation and the cross and redemption in, in ways that anybody could, could understand.
0: Well, one of the things that I strongly believe is that communication is, uh, in simplistic terms, is absolutely the hardest version version of, of communication using the least amount of words possible. And this is, I mean, you cover a really meaty topic and a kind of a really uh, in not that many words given. I mean, people write whole, you know, thesis dissertations on the atonement on just one part of the atonement. Um, what did you learn about Jesus and yourself in the process of writing this book? with as few words as possible.
1: Yeah, somebody said, I don't know who it was, but they said that you really haven't understood a subject until you can communicate it in Mm. a simple way. Um, And so sometimes we as academics, I'm a professor, sometimes we hide behind really long, complicated sentences and really large words to to sort of gloss over the fact that we really don't quite know what we're talking about. and that's okay. When we're talking about God, that's true. We don't know. We can't put God in a yeah. box. We can't reduce him to a really well-crafted sentence. And so that's okay to not be able to wrap our minds or our words around God. But we do still need to be able to communicate the gospel to the kinds of the people to the kinds of people that people like Christ and Peter and Paul talked to, which were just normal folks. Um, and so it was it was a really helpful exercise for me. To take some of the things I had done in a more academic context and to put them together with stories and illustrations and analogies and even, um, as people will see if they read the book, some of my really bad uh, drawings and artwork, <laughs> <laughs> to try to to help the gospel become clearer for for just ordinary folks.
0: Um, before, I, I did want to move away from this note. I wrote it down. As you were talking, um, you mentioned about praying over your daughter. One of the things that I love to do, uh, and our community loves, is when I can steal good ideas about how to bring Christ into our family lives. I'm curious about what your family devotional looks like, or any any good practices that people can just, you know, steal from you while they're uh, that maybe you've learned from somebody else, or you made up on your own.
1: Yeah, I think probably the most important thing. This is not unique to me, it's just time. You know. Um, we we mm. like to sometimes say, well, it's you know, it's about quality time, not quantity time, and we sometimes use that excuse, but the kids want to be with you and, and they don't you know they don't schedule their time with you by talking to your administrative assistant and saying, Hey Dad, could I can I get some time on Thursday? I know you got a little window there, you know. Um and so I think when it comes to discipleship for kids. And this is a really cheesy you know dad dad thing, but love is spelled t i m e and and yeah. whether that comes at bedtime or around the dinner table or one thing that i've been i've really enjoyed doing and it helped me when I recorded the audiobook for how Jesus saves is just reading aloud to my kids uh, before bedtime in mm-hmm. reading uh whether we've we've done like catechism stuff we've also just done good fiction uh sometimes by christian authors sometimes not that um that connects seeing jesus in a text which is really what we do when we read the bible to love and affirmation from mom and dad um and so that's something uh, i joked with the audio crew when we recorded this book that i was like well trained to to do an audiobook since i've been reading to my kids <laughs> each night and doing all the doing all the voices and the actions and and you know being trying to keep them entertained so those are just a couple thoughts on that
0: that's great um as this book has begun to kind of steep out into the wild what what are some of the things that you're hearing back about this what could potentially be it's just a you know, not many people write about the atonement specifically for people that wouldn't normally read about it. Like, <laughs> is that does that I hope that didn't sound weird. I meant it as a compliment. Um, what are some of the things that you're hearing as this kind of gets into more and more hands?
1: Yeah, I've been just really honored to hear uh, great things from folks. Uh, I'm excited, like I said, to have different ways that people can engage with the book. Uh, the audio book is one of those. And a lot of people who they want to learn about Jesus, but they just they're just not big readers or or maybe they don't have a lot of time to sit down and read a book. But they have a commute and they can listen to um, God's word and, and learn about Jesus in that way. So I've heard uh, I've, I've really been gratified to hear people uh, you know downloading the audiobook book. And, and we've also got videos that go along with each chapter for church small groups and, and that are that are using that to discuss and to. Talk about how Jesus saves uh, through the video resources that uh, that we've put together. So all those have been really—it's really fun. You, you writing a book, you know, it can be kind of like writing a sermon. It's kind of a lonely task. You sit down at your computer in yeah. your office or a coffee shop, and you put your earbuds in or whatever. And so it's—it really becomes a communal thing once it gets out there into the world. And so it's cool with the book coming out last week or. Uh, around that time to, to start to hear stories, uh, stories like that.
0: Yeah. At, at, what, what's kind of your prayer as this, you know, as this thing gets out and I'm, obviously you don't write a book like this because you're like, Oh, I'm bored. I should write a book on the atonement. Um, but it's more like a, a conviction or calling, you know, what, what's the thing that you're praying for as this gets into more and more hands?
1: There's really two things. So the first thing is that I wanna I wanna make the case that learning more about Jesus and how he saves, so that's what we call theology, actually fuels worship. And it fuels intimacy mm. with God. Like it's not just this cerebral, detached, academic pursuit. It's actually the kindling of Um, that God uses to spark revival and renewal and deeper intimacy uh, in the hearts of of regular Christians. And so that's one thing I'm praying for, that engaging with this aspect of theology, how Jesus saves, it's not just an intellectual pursuit, but it's the kindling for deeper worship and and renewal in the hearts and in the the church at, at large. that's the first thing is just that prayer about um god using it in that way the second thing is i've noticed that most christians and this is true even for academics when they talk about how jesus saves or the cross or you know how that affects us a lot of us basically just kind of have one angle on atonement or on salvation or on reconciliation and so for some of us it's the angle where we talk about oh Jesus bore the judgment or the penalty that that we deserved and, and that's true and I talk about that in the book um, in ways that I hope are biblical and helpful, but that's not the only aspect of atonement and so for other people you know the, the aspect the aspect that maybe they've grown up with is well you know jesus' loving example inspires us to be more loving and sacrificial right and that's true that's part of uh, how jesus transforms us by his spirit but it's not the only angle of atonement and so regardless of where you grew up whether it was in the church whether it was in a particular denomination or whether you just were completely outside of the walls of the church my argument is that uh, what jesus does on the cross and in the resurrection and in the sending of his spirit it's almost like this beautiful diamond or this gem that we need to turn and let the light refract out in different ways so that we can see how beautiful the gospel is and how amazing grace actually is. And so regardless of what your background is, my hope is just to kind of turn that stone a little bit to see a different side of
0: salvation. Talk to me a little bit about intimacy. I I think that there are a lot of people listening who, um, who understand you know uh, uh, scripture at a basic level they understand the gospel they, they maybe even memorize some tracts you know from from their you know strong Baptist upbringings whatever right like mm-hmm. uh, there are a lot of people who understand things but lack intimacy. How, how do you recommend people lean into a more intimate relationship with the Lord um, and and build on that?
1: In some ways, I think atonement, this is going to sound weird with people, maybe your associations with theology or doctrine, but in some ways, atonement is the ultimate intimacy term because it's at one yeah. It's taking two parties that were estranged, so they lacked intimacy, and bring them together in a relationship of union, at one atonement, union. It's a specific kind of union. It's not a codependent relationship. um, And it's not a union that obliterates the distinctive characteristics of the beloved, right? Um, It's an empowering union. And that's really what, um, that's one angle on salvation, is union with Christ. You couldn't pick a topic that is closer to this concept of intimacy uh, or, or reconciliation. Then to look at how Jesus um, lays his life down for his bride, the church, and how we are empowered uh,
0: by that when we find our identity and our belonging in him. Hey guys, just pausing this conversation with Josh to remind you to check out my blog. Actually, it's a substack and it's part of Spirit and Truth. The Spirit and Truth substack is perfect for anybody who considers themselves a spirit-led leader. Whether you lead at the church or in the office, it's a blog that comes out twice a week that's great for some practical insight on what it means to walk with the Lord. You can learn more about it by going to the website, uh, Spirit and Truth, Spirit A N D, Truth. com. So, what's that look like on a random Tuesday in Dayton, Ohio? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Help us, get practical with us. Yeah. I
1: mean, I think it, First of all, like the first chapter in the book, uh, which is a quote from the movie Jaws, uh, is you're going to need a a bigger boat, Uh, Jesus in the bigger boat. So practically speaking, we can't see how sweet the gospel actually is until we come to grips with how deep our problems apart from Jesus actually Mm. are. And so one part of the book is just trying to get people to, to understand, myself included, that we have more than just one problem. Um, and once we see how deep the human predicament is, then that sparks greater affection and greater intimacy for God in a very practical sense because we realize how broken and how lost we are apart from, apart from Jesus. And so that's one practical part of it, and it's, maybe it sounds like a downer, but it actually, I think, sparks affection and intimacy, is coming to grips with the various facets of our problem or our predicament, our sin problem, apart from Christ.
0: Yeah, I think uh, one of the things that I say oftentimes when I do funerals is that grief is some terrible kind of privilege because it's a reflection of the depth in which we love. Mm-hmm. Right. And so um, and I stole that quote from somebody who I now I can't remember. But um, so, so I did not say that. So don't quote me. <laughs> but, you know, that's that's kind of what you're saying. Right. It's like, hey, uh, when I understand the depth of my sin, full nature, then I can measure the depth of the sacrifice that Jesus made for me to bring me to him. Is that I mean, am I yeah. paraphrasing that back correctly?
1: Yeah, that's exactly right. And so if if we want to get really practical with it, you know, a lot of times when people talk about atonement, they talk about our sin problem that makes us guilty before God. And that's Mm -hmm. one facet of our predicament. That's a real facet. But a topic that sometimes we don't talk about is our shame problem. And there are Mm -hmm. millions of millions of people just who are borne down by the weight of shame. And the really insidious thing about shame, some, now I'm going to say, you know, I heard somewhere, uh, one author says is, you know, you feel guilt for what you've done, but you feel shame for who you are. It's like yeah. it clings to your identity like an odor and it doesn't wash out, you know. And and the really terrible thing about shame is that you can feel shame not merely for what you've done, but for what other people have done to you. Um. And so there's this terrible story in the Old Testament about, about Hamar and how she experiences a sexual assault. Um, and, and she screams out, where can I go to be rid of this disgrace, this shame? Right. And so here's, you know, here's the question How does the cross of Jesus Christ deal not just with our guilt problem, but with our shame problem that people wrestle with on a daily basis? And so I talk about in the book, you know, this, this fact that we don't really paint or depict in our Christian artwork, but that is that Jesus was crucified completely naked. And we know that from Roman history. We know the soldiers divided up his mm. garment by casting lots in front of his mom, his this mocking crowd, and his female wow. disciples, right? There is no more shameful experience, for, especially for a modest Jewish man than to sort of be splayed out naked in public and mocked as being accursed and as being a fraud, right? And mm. so how does that, how does that connect to the good news? Well, one of the things I think the gospels are trying to say is that Jesus enters into our experience of shame. Um, and, and the scriptures even talk about how he scorned the shame of the cross and he knows what it feels like. Wow. He knows what it feels like to be assaulted and to be abused and to be shamed publicly in the worst way imaginable. The first uh, Christian piece of artwork of Jesus that we have is not in a stained glass window. It's not even a Christian piece of artwork. I have a, a picture of it in the book, and it's a piece of graffiti in Rome itself. And it shows a naked man on a cross with the head of a donkey. And it's mm. clearly, it's, it's done to mock this Christian, a guy by the name of Alex Alex. And the inscription says, Alex worships his God. Uh, it's meant to mock wow. Jesus. Like, why would you worship a God like that, right? That's stupid. It's silly. It's shameful. And yet within just a, a few generations, Christians had taken the ultimate symbol of shame and disgrace and turned it into the cross. The ultimate symbol of victory and of a God who empathizes with our experience of shame and brokenness and even death. And so that's just one example of a different angle on salvation, a different angle on the cross than maybe many of us grew up with. But it does speak to a really practical experience of regular people, and that is our our wrestling match with with shame and not just guilt.
0: I think that's a beautiful description and something that so many of us can hold on to kind of in a practical way. I I am curious to get your thoughts though, on uh, why do you think that the, the, the church, like the big church has left out this idea of, of, of practical atonement theology. Why do we stop? You, You know what I mean? That, that message feels as equally powerful as any catchy sermon I've listened to or given yet. I'm not necessarily sure that there are many preachers up there preaching about the atonement in that kind of way. Where's the disconnect?
1: Sometimes I think the disconnect is we don't quite know how it works. You know, I mean, it it Mm -hmm. is a very strange thing to say, Hey, good news. (laughs) A a jewish man was crucified right i mean that paul talks about the foolishness of the cross when he writes to the corinthians and he does that because he recognizes the strangeness of this gospel that he says you know the jews want signs and wonders and the greeks want their deep philosophy and here's what i've got christ crucified um Mm. and so Maybe one reason we struggle with it is it's just kind of, it is. It is a strange, through the eyes of just human beings and human wisdom, it, we don't quite know what to do with it sometimes. And so maybe we're prone to just talk about, hey, uh, you should be a good person. You know, you should love your neighbor. You should you know, pay your taxes, something like that. But maybe not that one. But uh, so we talk about something else because maybe we, we struggle with what Paul calls the, the foolishness or the apparent foolishness of of the cross, mm. that that might be one reason. I'm sure there are others, um, but I think we have to stop. If Paul, if Paul is right that the cross sits at the center of the gospel message, then we can't just skip past the good news in order to get to the good advice, because yeah. the good news is is paramount in its importance. Um, that's a, those are a couple thoughts on so maybe why we don't talk about it enough, and maybe why we need to wrestle with it a little bit more.
0: That's good. Good. Um, one of the things that I love to do is read dedication pages. Um, your dedication page is short and sweet, and, uh, and it just says for you uh, and Gregory, comma, king, and, and lowercase... <laughs> Uh I, I got to tell me, me the story.
1: Yeah, so I've written, um, I guess this is my fifth book. And so the first one I wrote was dedicated to my dad. That's called Long Story Short, uh, similar, pub, same publisher as, as this one. And then all the subsequent ones, uh, the next one was for my wife, my dissertation. And, and then all the subsequent ones are dedicated to my kids. And so Ewan is my third kid. Uh, I recognize that Scottish name, Ewan, might be a little bit strange in Oklahoma. And at probably a lot of places in the United States. But Ewan Gregory is his name. And maybe other parents are like this. I never call my kids by their actual names unless they're in trouble. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so I call them, I have all these, nick- I mean, I probably have six or seven nicknames for each kid. And for me, those nicknames are their terms of endearment, they're terms of affection, and they often don't make any sense um except maybe to the kid and to me but uh my son you and he had a little stuffed animal dog, like a little paw patrol kind of dog when he was little, and he decided to name that dog king and I just thought that was a funny name like who who names something King, and I started you know talking to him Love about it. his little dog, and eventually it kind of became my nickname for him. I hope it doesn't mean that he's going to grow up to be like a third world dictator or something like that. But (laughs) (laughs) Uh, But there there is, there is like a theological, (laughs) there's like a theological kind of connection to it that, you know, one of the things that the new Testament teaches is because of what Christ has done for us, that we are joint heirs with Christ. Mm -hmm. And there's like this, there's this Royal identity that comes along with being a son or a daughter of, of God. And so I was hoping to, to maybe touch on both the, the silly nickname and that sort of deeper theological truth there.
0: No, it's so good. Uh, okay, so I, I, you know I have to ask, right? So if we go back to the very beginning and your daughter were to ask you that same question again, Right? What's the answer that you're getting?
1: Yeah. Well, I don't think it fits on a bumper sticker. Um, I mean, I don't think <laughs> it's not it's it's not reducible to a to a campaign slogan. And I think that's actually a good thing.
0: A that, good thing. Yeah. You know.
1: But I what I try to lay out in the book are four answers to that question, or really five answers. The first chapter, like I said is jesus saves by revealing how deep our problems apart from god actually are and that connects to what i said earlier about you know one of the things paul realizes when he meets jesus on the road to damascus and as he wrestles with what jesus says to him is oh man like i thought the problem was just you know bad Jews who are worshiping this crucified Messiah. In other words, it's the same thing we do. I thought the problem was this one little group of people that I don't like, right? Politically or socially or ethnically or culturally or whatever. And he's like, I don't know. It's so much deeper than that. So that's the first answer is he reveals how deep our sin problem is. But then the next the next four chapters are just very a simple, historic answers to that question. He saves us by reliving the human calling or the human story mm. on our behalf. That's Jesus as the new and true Adam. Um, so I talk about what that means. It means that he saves us through his life and not just his death, right? The, mm. You know, it's a, it actually matters that Jesus lived and taught and healed and loved for, for decades, instead of just being killed as a baby under King Herod in Bethlehem, right? That, I mean, that would have accomplished the death, and he still would have been sinless. He still would have been the sinless son of God, but his his life actually matters. And, and so that's one chapter, is he relives the human story or the human calling for us. And then I talk about how he he pays the penalty for sin, and he takes on the judgment that we deserve. That's another angle. Mm. Um, and, and then the third one, or the third of those kind of four answers, is that he, um, he triumphs over sin and death and the devil. He, he, it's about a victory and not just yeah. a death. It's about a victory and not just a punishment or something like that. And so trying to zero in on the triumph that comes about by virtue of, of the cross. And then the last one, which has an incredibly strange title from the Harry Potter series, uh, <laughs> Jesus and Severus Snape. I think I was reading Harry Potter, like during the pandemic to my kids when I was you know, writing. Huh. One of my buddies is like, there are a lot of Harry Potter references in the book. And it's just, that's what I was reading, man. Um, so I, I talk about how Jesus reveals, the empowering love of God um, through his life and through his death and and importantly through the sending of his holy spirit to transform mm. us um, and so that last chapter is about the love of God that is not just witnessed but that actually transforms us when we when we come to grips with what Christ has done
0: that's so good, so good. Um, One other note that I wanted to make sure I talked about that's not related to the book uh, before we we run out of time here is, by my estimations you've been blogging regularly since 2016. Is that accurate?
1: Yeah, I mean, regularly might be a charitable way of saying it.
0: Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'm, I'm always here for the charity. That's for sure. I've actually well, I had to update uh, what, my bio
1: because it used to say regularly, like on the back of the book. And now I had them just say blogging. <laughs> <laughs>
0: um, what, what's, uh, what's been your biggest learning curve about yourself in that process of writing for that long?
1: So one of the things I've learned, and maybe it's part of the reason I don't blog quite as frequently anymore... Is you know blogging as a as a practice has gone through these ebbs and flows. Yeah, and, you know it's been it's it's you know it's like Christ. It's died and been reborn, and you know it's this kind of up and down. <laughs> uh, probably a lot of younger readers now are like, "What's what is blogging?" I don't even what's know what's a that blog. Is.
0: Yeah, what's um, a blog? Yeah.
1: But one thing I've I've learned is that back, especially in the days of Facebook when it was you know more popular is there's a danger in constantly just responding to whatever the kind of outrage mm. du jour is, you know, whatever the thing is today that people are talking about on Twitter or Facebook, just sitting down at the keyboard and hammering out my take on that. Um, even though it sometimes generated a lot of readership, I wasn't always pleased with the fruit of that, right? And... I wasn't always pleased with the way those takes aged over time. And so one thing I've tried to do with my blog now is to say, what do I what do I care about deeply that has eternal value? And that maybe isn't just kind of Hello. me talking about whatever is in the news, you know, this five minutes. Uh, and that has caused me to maybe not post quite as much, but I hope that's for kind mm. of, Genuine reasons of spiritual growth and discipleship and not just, you know, be, me being lazy and, and not taking time to, to type it out.
0: Yeah, that's good. I, I Listen, I saw it and I was like, dang, bro's been going at it for a while. it's like, impressive. <laughs> so, uh, okay. I have one more question to ask you. But before I do, I know that my uh, listeners are going to want to connect with you all over the interwebs. I know they're going to want to subscribe to your podcast. Where is the best place to learn all the things? Yeah, you can go to
1: my website, which is com. which is super creative. Uh, it's just my name. And, and that's that's my blog. Uh, there's there's some other info on there. And then I host a podcast called Outpost Theology, which is sort of located uh, on the frontier of theology, culture, and the church. Um, and, uh, you know, I'm 40 now, so I'm still – I'm on Facebook again, so <laughs> – me and yeah, me and everybody over the age of forty, I think, is who's left. That's I'm it. 42,
0: and it's my, it's by far one of my most active platforms. It's just I, me and my grandparents. I, I, that's it. <laughs> and my son, so he control me. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's great. Uh, okay, last question. I always love to ask people. It's an advice question. I'm going to ask you to go back and give yourself one piece of advice, except I get to name the season of life that you're in. Mm. And so I want to take you back um, to the end of your very first class that you ever taught. Right. If you could sit down with that younger version of yourself, sit knee to knee with them, look them in the eye, hold his hands and give them one piece of wisdom for what he's going to go through. Mm. What are you going to tell him?
1: Oh man! So the first class I ever taught—that would have been in two thousand and nine when I started teaching college classes, which I was entirely too young, probably, to be teaching college. I still had hair, and you know, no kids at that point. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, I think I would. I think I would tell myself. I think in some of my younger years, and maybe people can relate to this. You're kind of younger profit years where you're calling out maybe imbalances there's a place for that um but i think there's also a place to not constantly be reacting to perceived imbalances Mm -hmm. but rather to immerse yourself in the deep waters of the faith so that you can say things that age well and they're not just for a particular, like I said earlier, a particular kind of five minutes of, um, of history. I think, you know, I want to be we need to be gracious with ourselves because you, know, you don't know what you don't know in those earlier seasons. And so uh, yeah. I don't want to be too harsh on myself, but I do. I sometimes go back and I'll reread something that I wrote a long time ago or a lecture that I wrote. And I'm like, oh, man. Uh, I, I wouldn't quite say it that way now, so uh, hopefully that means i'm I'm progressing in, in one way or another
0: amen amen uh Josh man thank you so much for being so generous with your time today. Thank you for taking the time to wrestle with such hard and important topics and for uh for being a part of the the seabed kind of Wesleyan tribe that I get to call my home um, it's always good to to meet other thought leaders there so thank you yeah tony thanks for having me on man i appreciate it man i love this conversation with josh i think his insights are so important for the church today i also think it's important to to look at some of these bigger theological ideas and wrestle with them grapple with them right like i just think that there's some um intimacy involved in this i i really really enjoyed the dialogue so do me a favor, let Josh know that you heard him here on the podcast. Also, if you haven't yet shared this episode with a friend and remember guys, if you want to follow Jesus, you must be willing to move.